Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we are sponsored by the 2016 Stumptown Improv Festival, and guess what? They are now accepting submissions. The festival will take place from August 4th through August 6th in lovely Portland, Oregon at the Artists' Repertory Theater. Now in its third year, the Stumptown Improv Festival has already become legendary for its fully stocked green room, overstuffed gift bags, and complimentary hugs. Submissions are open until April 14th, so you better hop to it. Head over to StumptownImprov.com for more information. That's StumptownImprov.com for more information. And if you're like most people, I'm sure you've asked yourself this question. How can I make my dreams come true? How can I spend July in Baltimore? Well, search no longer. The 10th annual Baltimore Improv Festival runs from July 25th through the 31st. Sponsored by the Baltimore Improv Group, come play in front of some of the largest, loudest, most supportive audiences you'll find at any festival in America. For more information and to register, all you need to do is go to BaltimoreImprovFestival.org. That's BaltimoreImprovFestival.org. And if you find yourself in Chicago this summer, you have got to sign up. You've got to register for my award-winning Artist Low Comedy Summer Weekend Intensives. Now, I'm going to tell you this right now. These sell out really fast because I only limit it to 14 people, and I only offer these workshops once during the year. I'll be offering it twice, two weekends, the weekend of July 30th and 31st or August 6th and 7th. But hurry, go to my website right now and sign up at jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. We've got another great episode of Improv Nerd for you. Our guest today is in four movies this summer and spring, and we're talking about big summer comedies like The Boss, The Meddler, The Bronze, and Ghostbusters. She's also a cast member on Saturday Night Live. We're talking about the hilarious and talented Cecily Strong. We talked to Cecily about uh, growing up in Oak Park, Illinois, and why she was a natural ham. Going off to college to Cal Arts out in California, and after taking a groundlings class in improv, coming back to Chicago and in, in, in immersing herself in the improv community, and why that was so important for her in her development. We also talked to her about why initially she uh, resisted auditioning for Saturday Night Live. Before we get to the interview with Cecily, um, I just want to say my voice is off a little today. You can tell I'm not trying to hide anything from you. And that's because uh, it's, it's a two-parter, actually. Uh, one is uh, I am in a lot of grief with the, the death of my father, who died, uh, as we're recording this, just a little over a week. And uh, because of the stress, it's been very... Um, physically exhausting too you you don't know when it's going to hit uh, you you're out at target and you know buying a, a, a yoga ball for your wife and the next thing you know you're like oh god i got to get home and take a nap because it's wiping me out so much and the second part is uh, i because of the stress i've gotten a cold so enough about me this is our second phone interview and um, i'm learning i, I it, it's not as easy as when you're actually in the same room with the person and you're interviewing them so it's going to take me a while to, uh, it's, it's a learning curve. I feel a little ashamed, but I just wanted to let you know that. Uh, 
I'm just doing the best I can here. Uh, here it is. You're really going to enjoy it. The Cecily Strong episode. Enjoy. Jimmy's a nerd. He's a nerd. Oh, yeah. Jimmy's a nerd. He's a nerd. Uh, Cecily Strong, thank you so much for being uh, our guest on Improv Nerd. Thank you for having me. Now, you uh, grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb uh in Chicago, and you were voted the funniest person in your middle school yearbook. What made you so funny back then? Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what he makes you funny to a junior high kid now. Um, I think I was just a ham. I'm glad the internet wasn't around because I probably would have been bullied if it were. I'm I'm like, I'm humiliated of myself. If like remembering myself as a 12 year old is humiliating. What, what about it that when you look back, you go, Oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, just like, I was just such a ham. I mean, like, I guess I'm kind of the same, but just a 12 year olds are all such dweebs anyway, but just like doing, doing a lot of, I was watching so much SNL and just like doing impressions of what was already on TV and, I think we were like all doing like our versions of the cheerleaders, you know, at outside of school and stuff and doing my own um, characters and accents and things like that. I remember I left all of our, our voicemail, you know, like leave us a message, the messages for people to leave voicemail. Were your parents supportive of your, your hamminess when you were younger? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they put me in a drama class when I was three. Like that was when I took my first drama class and I did a lot of community theater. And then I started doing professional theater when I was like 11 or 10 or 11. Um, I did a lot in the city growing up. My mom would drive me every day and she worked at the same time. And I would just like, she'd make me spaghetti and I'd eat it in the car on the way to rehearsals and stuff. Um, and then, so, so you, you went to this performing arts school here in Chicago and, mm -hmm. uh, and then you go to Kale Arts. Right. And you had teachers tell you when you were at CalArts that you should be taking classes at the Groundlings, which, of course, is uh, it's like Second City uh, for people that don't know. Uh, a lot of people from Saturday Night Live come there. Uh, and then you started to take a class at the Groundlings. What did you like about that class? Um, that was really my first real improv class. I think I'd taken one before when I was nine or something. Um, but. I'd always done theater before, and I guess CalArts is such a, it's kind of avant-garde and experimental, so that kind of prepares you for, it is a lot of improv, but just not, um, not in the sense we know it in Chicago. But I'd always thought of myself as such a strictly, you know, theater person. So that was really my first real improv class, and I really, really fell in love with it, and I loved everybody in my class. I loved the teacher, and so right away I knew I knew two things. I knew that that's what I wanted to do and that I was going to be poor. So I moved back to Chicago pretty much immediately. Um, so why, where, why, where one why did can you... be poor and my mother can buy me groceries. Um, is that why you moved back to Chicago? Yeah. I mean, pretty much because I knew it was, it was just an easy, it was an easy choice. I have family there and it's the best place to study comedy, really. There's so much, there's so many opportunities to study there. And, and, you know, for us who've been doing it in Chicago for a while, we take it for granted. What is it that makes Chicago 
I think one of the best cities to 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 study comedy and improv. Oh, it a hundred percent. It is probably the best city. I wouldn't. I just say that easily and not think it's hyperbole. Um, I, I think it's just because there are so many. There's Second City. There's IO. There's the Annoyance. There's every, there's new theaters popping up all the time. There's that's just like where you go to do it. It's there's uh, there's an audience for it. There's so many people there doing it, and there's the best teachers. There's the best audiences for it. That's just where you go to learn it. And so you're in Chicago, you're taking a lot of classes, you're working four jobs to survive. How <laughs> important was that to immerse yourself in improv at that time? Um, I don't know that there's any other way to do it. I didn't know anybody who was sort of like half assing it in improv. I think really like you, when you're in the world, you're really fully in it. It's just, you fall in love with it so much that that's just what you want to be doing. You want to be it's just an every day of your life kind of thing. You're taking classes every day. You're doing workshops. You have your own private group that you're producing your own show that nobody's coming to see. You're begging your friends to see. You know, it's just, it really is your life. You're seeing shows. There's, you know, you have your favorites, your heroes in Chicago that you're wanting to see their shows. It just really, I, I didn't know anybody that was just sort of like, oh, I do this once a week. And when you were doing this, Cecily, what were you thinking? Like, what what was your goal at that point? Um, at that point, you know, I wanted to be, I was really, I loved that I got to play with Virgin Daiquiri. That Which was, is an all-female team, if people don't know. Right. So that was a real high point for me um, when, when Dina asked me to, to play with them. I really just kind of, I wanted to be able to sort of just survive and get to do what I loved. You know, I didn't, obviously uh, SNL is like the dream and it's, but it feels like, you know, that's like winning the lottery and it felt insane to say, I want to be on SNL because it's just so unlikely. And I know so many amazingly talented people who just wouldn't be on SNL for a variety of reasons. It's just, it's, a, there's luck is such a big part of it too, you know, and you were reluctant. Um, you were re reluctant uh, to even audition back in 2012 yeah. at the I/O, um, and you almost didn't go. Can you tell us that story? Well, because I hadn't done any, I hadn't done a lot of like solo work yet. I I came from you know theater and ensemble and um, and improv, and not a lot of um, like solo sketch work. So I took a workshop with um, Matt Miller, and I. Sharna was pushing me to do it. And I kind of, I'd heard, you know, once you audition once, that's your one shot. And if Lauren doesn't want to see you again, you don't get to audition again. So I didn't want to blow my one shot. Um, but Sharna was, was very um, encouraging and, and she's the real, I, I definitely owe a lot of this in my head. I, I definitely always thank her <laughs> for this job in a big way. And so how did you then change your mind? Um, I think after doing the workshop, I just, I, you know, you seeing myself on tape and getting, just feeling like, oh, maybe I am ready for this. And then going in front of, I, you know, Sharna held auditions to even be seen in front of the SNL people. And I think they they came earlier than we thought so we wound up all having to audition the same night and I was working in the box office that night and I had to go last and it was like 
after a night of everyone doing their own material, I went, you know, so it was like two hours of solo stuff of like everybody doing their Woody Allen or whatever it is. And then I went and I got laughs. And so I, I felt that that kind of gave me the confidence to do it. Like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm okay at this. <laughs> maybe I have a shot or at least like I'll, I can be proud of what I did. Even if I don't have a shot, I can be proud that I did an, a, a decent job in front of them. And do you know that night if they're going to ask you to fly to New York to audition? No, um, not at all. And my family was there and they were sitting right behind Lauren. And so they were so nervous. And afterwards, I can only see like the nerves on their face. So I thought I'd totally blown it because they just were so they looked like they'd seen a ghost. And so I was like, oh, my God, I must have sucked. Like, just re trying to read my dad's face. But my dad was just like he'd just seen Lorne Michaels. So he was making that face and not talking. <laughs> so when you went to bed that night, what are you thinking? How are you feeling about yourself? I mean, I don't even I, I can't even remember. I think I was just like sort of in shock. And then the next day, I remember I was at Trader Joe's and I got. I got an email that said that I was, that they wanted to see me at the Ritz Carlton, that they were going to, you know, like talk to eight of us or something. And I started like crying and Trader Joe's and I called my mom um, and we did this weird like speed dating thing at the Ritz Carlton. Where what, what you met with Lauren for like 10 minutes or something? Yeah. Where there was like, there were two tables set up with um, a couple of the producers and writers at one table and then, Lauren and um, Eric Kenward and Colin Jost and Steve Higgins at one table. And we, each of us, you know, moved around the tables, you know, spent five minutes in each seat or whatever. The thing I love about pretending that that was completely normal and like trying to have a normal conversation. And what were you thinking when you went into that? How were you feeling? So nervous and, and just like, completely just like what is going on like what's my life right now you know just like it was all so just that it was just so not real like this isn't my life and trying to be like I, I'm trying to keep a distance from it too I didn't want to be crushed because I just was like I'm not going to get this um and then you you are they fly you there and you you audition and you do get it correct yeah. Yes, I did get it eventually. I got flown out. So I, I was flown out for a screen test um, later that week. That was an all female screen test. And then I was, I got back. And I got an email from Lindsay Shugas, who's in the talent department that was saying they were going to fly me out again, just for meetings. And they do these like, Again, where you just have to sit and hang out, where they just make sure you're like not a crazy person or you're crazy in the right way. Right. And then and then I had to wait a month and heard nothing. And, you know, again, it's like trying to go back to my regular life and be like, that's OK. You know, if I don't get it, I still it's so cool. You know, just auditioning opens you up to so much, you know, then all of a sudden you get calls from agents and managers that you weren't getting before. So. Uh, then about a month later, I got called to do another screen test and they wanted, you know, a new, 
a new set from me. So I sat with my friend Kellen Alexander, and we I remember we were on my porch and just going and running all these new, trying to do new impressions and new characters, and he was helping me with that um, to just to try to come up with a new bit. And then I was went out and did that and came back, and then I got another call that I was being flown out again, and it was that last trip where I met with Lauren, and that's where I was told I got the job. Did you do that character that is so hilarious? The one, the the I call her like the Lincoln Park Trixie. That's drunk. <laughs> I didn't. Everybody asked me that, but I didn't. We, I, I wrote that with Colin about two weeks in, just making fun of myself, kind of. Um, in what way? Well, we were trying to come up with an update feature using we were going over all the things I did in my audition and I was I think I said like and that one's like really important for society and just started making fun of myself like that and we went back and forth he was like maybe there's something to that and I was like uh, I don't know and and that's how that started what what part of that character is you well I think in the the part of me that's the the liberal, the obnoxious liberal part of me, I guess. But you don't drink as much as she does, right? Well, she doesn't even, the funny thing is, so the first couple times we did it, she doesn't, she doesn't even necessarily have to be drunk, but uh, everybody just call, everybody calls her drunk. And then uh, a couple times we did it, people would be like, you need the wine glass. And I was like, she doesn't have a wine glass. And I had two people tell me like the second time I was doing it, you know, don't forget the wine glass. Is it like for continuity? And I was like, there was never a wine glass. And I had to go show them the tape that I never had a wine glass. But people just assume she's drunk. But in my head, she doesn't have to be drunk. She's just obnoxious. Those are just those people to me don't even need to be drunk. They're just that obnoxious. Right. And I say she's I give her I'm like, I want her to be drunk. So I cut her slack. I know you're giving her too much credit. Right. In my head, she doesn't have to be drunk. Those are just like people on the internet to me. Now you have four movies coming out this spring and summer: Ghostbusters, The Boss, The Bronze, Staten Island Summer. You are oh, the meddler. Staten Island Summer is already out. That it's was, already out. On, that okay. was on Netflix. Yeah, last year. Yeah. Okay, so you've got three movies coming out. Uh, no, the meddler is the fourth one. The meddler is the fourth one. You are having a great year. And yeah. uh, I love the Duplass brothers. Uh, they mm -hmm. directed The Bronze. Uh, Mark and Jay, they are known for letting their actors improvise on set. Um, how did how was that process working with them? Well, so they didn't actually direct it. They were um, producers on it. And I didn't, I, I'm like obsessed with them, but I, I didn't get to meet them. That I have a pretty small role in that film. Um, but because they were involved, it was, you know, an easy choice to jump at that movie. But um, I got to at pretty much every movie I've done, I've gotten to improvise a lot. And it's it's really a real treat for me. And it's sort of it's really nice um, when they let you do that. And I think it it definitely helps a lot. And when you have that skill, it's like it's it's really nice when they let you use it. And I think it's it always helps. It helps in the end. It helps the character. It just makes it everything more real. And I think with movies, you know, it's like they say that movies are for directors and TV is more for the writer. 
And when, you know, you say um, when you do movies, they let you improvise. How do they let you improvise? For people that listen to this podcast who are huge improv nerds, you just, you're not going up there and just riffing. There, there, there's a method to your madness. Right. Well, I mean, it depends. Like in Ghostbusters with Paul, Paul's such a comedy. Paul Feig. Right. So he let us, sometimes, I mean, we would just truly, completely riff. And he has, um, uh, there would be, you know, joke people who would come in to punch up jokes too. So they would, um, and Paul himself would as well, like give us, and not the others would give us little jokes that we could use too. So we were always changing the script and just getting to say anything. And, you know, with Kristen and Melissa and Kate and Leslie too, it's just, there's just so many funny people around and we were constantly improvising and it was, that was so much fun. What was so much? What was so much fun about that experience? Of I mean, Ghostbusters, you know, a legendary comedy. Yeah, well, I think just for me, it was getting to work with all these people that I love so much, and you know, even the ones coming in to punch up jokes were people that I write with at SNL, who are you know my favorite that I write with, you know, away from the show too. So. Uh, it was just like all my favorite people that make me laugh so much that I get to now work with outside of the show, too. Um, so it was just like just laughing so much, you, can, you know, it was really cool. Was there and Andy any Garcia who made me also made me laugh so much? Was there any pressure you felt working on Ghostbusters with such a big cast in, in such a history? Um the pressure is like, I hope I make the cut. I mean, there's that because there's such a big cast. I'm like, let's hope I end up in the movie. Um, but that was really it. And I guess because it was so secretive because of the hag and because it's, that's really been the only pressure was like, oh God, have I said, I hope I haven't said anything. I don't, you know, like how secretive do I have to be? Am I allowed to say I'm in it yet? I don't know. Am I allowed to say where I am? Um, but other than that, I don't really feel any pressure. Um, you said that you feel lucky to be doing comedy during this time because of women like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler opened the door and broke down barriers for women like yourself and Melissa McCarthy. What have you found yourself doing to actively open doors for the next generation of, of female comedians? Um, I don't know that I'm like thinking about it that that much. I don't know that I'm like going home and thinking about it. I'm just sort of being who I am and just doing what I do and hoping that the audience stays and that there are still jobs. And I'm trying to, you know, when I write, I'm on my own and try to create, I, you know, right now I'm working on writing a movie, you know, writing other shows. And when I do that, I want to write for, you know, write good female roles and write good roles for people of color. And so I guess there's that. I mean, but that's really the only, like, I guess, active step I could think of that I'm taking, but I, I'm not sure. Um, you also had a chance uh, a couple of years ago to, to host the White House Correspondent Dinner. And <laughs> that is... That that's like hosting the Oscars. It's a, it's a really tough room. And yeah, I, I heard if you made the president and the first lady laugh, then you'd be okay. What was your strategy going into that? Um, well, they asked me really early, um, so I 
I just was like, I had months and months to doubt myself and not do much else because you can't really write jokes in August for something that you're going to do at the end of April. That's all topical, you know? Um, so that was, I wish I had been asked a little later and I, I sort of, I, I wanted an out immediately. Like I wish we had a show that weekend so I could have said no, but been like, cool, I got asked. That's great. But we didn't have a show. So I had to say yes, because it was also, you know, it's Obama and I, I figured I should do things that scare me and I never was going to get a, a chance like that again. Um, and I was really happy with the way it turned out and that it was, I got to say things that were important to me. And I'm, I was even happier that I never have to do it again. What was the doubt uh, building up to it for you? I mean, it's just, I'm not, I'm not a standup. I'm not, I knew going, I knew everybody I'd been told, I'd been told by everybody how terrible the room is. Um, I'd been told how many people say no to it too. You know, I was like, I know I'm not their first choice. So I wonder how many people have said no before they asked me. It was just, I'd been warned so much. And so it was like, I know I can't win. So I just want to break even. But, but you were willing to take that risk. And why was that important? Um, for, for me, it was just, um, a, personally, I, I would have, it would have been a real loss if I had, said no just a personal thing i would have been really disappointed in myself if i had been too scared even if you would have bombed well i would have hoped i wouldn't have bombed. i think i would have i trust myself enough to to think i wouldn't have bombed i mean i was afraid of it but i thought i'm just going to make sure i'm going to you know work with the best people and i i think i'm good enough that I won't bomb, I hope, you know, I may like not, I may be mediocre, but that's okay. I'll be mediocre and people will forget eventually. How to, you, you've got to, you got to share your secret with me because I, I, I continue to bomb. I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> how do you, how do you prepare not to bomb? I, I think it's just, I just assume that it's just mediocre. And like when you have bombed, I think it's because like doing improv, you've failed enough that you're like, you know what? I lived through it and I did another show and I did well. So it's sort of, you've lived through a, a bad show. You know what it is and you, you got up the next day and you were okay. And when you do like for me, my problem is I'll do a bad show or, or and I will beat myself up for, for days. Oh, for sure. Do you do that? Or how, how do you get through that? Because you've got like, th these are, you know, you're doing really well. Oh, I mean, and I, I beat myself up all the time. I have to take Xanax every Sunday. I have a full anxiety attack every Sunday that I can't help. Um, I think that that's all normal. And I, we're all performers and we're sensitive pansies. And of course, we all go through. I mean, that's all completely normal. I don't know the trick for like feeling good about yourself all the time. I, I do therapy and I take vacations and I drink heavily. Uh, I, so do, I don't know. I do therapy too. And on the podcast, I, I bring it up and I love to talk about it with the guest. How have you, uh, how has therapy helped you become uh, successful and also helped you be, become a better performer? 
Um, I think it just makes you, makes me a better person. It's let me, I think I can't do much if I'm depressed. You know, I don't think anybody's at their best when they're depressed and I don't work well in that. I think, you know, for me, what I do is I do best from a place of joy. And in order to, you know, access joy, I can't be holding on to, you know, grief and anger and self-doubt and loathing. Um, and so therapy helps me kind of get those things out. And, and especially, you know, we have a job where we are constantly judged and we are, we put ourselves out there to be judged and, you know, the way we look and the way we talk and the way we think and our ideas. So um, what's been really helpful with therapy, like my favorite thing that my therapist has said is, you know, that these ideas, these things in my head that I may think about myself, that they're just thoughts, they're not facts, you know, and that has always been really nice. And, you know, she's like, so we'll just work about, we'll just work on, you know, like just taking some of them out, just like throwing some of them out of your head, you know, some of the worst ones. And and how do you take them out? Just metaphorically? Uh, yeah, exactly. This is for me. Yeah. This is for me. Not for the listeners. This is for me. The well, I just thing- liked that, that it was just like, you know, just to remember that it's like, that's not a fact. That's not an objective fact that you're an idiot, that you're bad at this, that you're not as good at at this, that you'll never be, this. you know, I I just really needed to, to hear that. I need to remind myself of that sometimes. Did you, you know, my, and, and this, I'm, I appreciate your honesty because it's really helping me because I always think like, um, you know, I had an opportunity years ago to audition for Saturday Night Live and I blew it off. And I look at people that, like yourself, that have gone on to a lot of success. And I blew it off because I was afraid and I had no support. I mean, yeah. I had a ticket in my hand and everything. And um, I always think, well, you know, you, 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 being on Saturday Night Live, doing all these movies that you, you've been doing, you've got to, you know, like there's, you've got to be happy and all your problems go away. But, but that's, but that's not true, right? Oh God, no. I have like snot stains on my couch in my office from, from when I've like just sobbed and been like, I'm, I'm worthless and nobody wants me. The studios don't want me. I'm not a get, I'm not, you know, even to get Ghostbusters, there was a while where I was going to do it and then I wasn't going to do it. It was just so back and forth. And it's just like, it's, it's just a hard business, but I've been doing it. I'd been doing it for so long, you know, since I was a kid. So I, I had started dealing with rejection at such a young age that I think that was, I've done, I'm pretty good with it for the most part. I mean, it's still, it always hurts, but I'm used to, I know to expect it, I guess. And the other thing I loved, uh, you know, researching you is it seems to me you can access tears very easily in your life. <laughs> I sure can. And I do. I'm a big cry baby. Um, uh, but, but you'll cry for, for, you know, for everything, happiness, yeah. sadness, right? Mm-hmm. What was it growing up that your parents, uh, you know, that, that there, the, the emotions were free. Cause I grew up in a household where, you know, you hit, if you were sad, you, you know, you just buried that for the rest of your life. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't, and I come from a family of wasps, so Mm -hmm. it's not like we should have been that way. I don't know. I mean, 
I guess because I was always an actor. So I'm in all acting classes are like group therapy anyway. So it's like teaches you how to access that. And once you start learning that from a young age, I, I can access it too easily. I cry too easily. I wish I was better at, at holding it in sometimes. Um, and, and how does that help with comedy to be able to access that sadness? Well, I think uh, for me, a lot of my the way I do comedy, you know, not being a stand up, um, but coming from comedy as an actor is, is playing it everything real or trying to play everything very real. And I think um, a lot of times for me, I, I had a director once that I really liked uh, in theater. He was a French guy, but it, it was sort of like talking about how comedy and tragedy, a lot of times you play it the same. You may like timing is a little different in comedy, but a lot of times comedy and tragedy, you'll play it the same. And it's just like the ending is different. And that's how you know if it was a comedy or a tragedy. And he brought up um, Buster Keaton. And it was sort of like, you look at these like Buster Keaton movies and he always looks like he's about to die, but he doesn't die. So everybody can laugh. Um, and so that always stuck with me. And it's sort of like watching somebody react in a real way makes people laugh. That does make us laugh. And it was, I was doing a scene my freshman year of college from Angels in America that I was playing very real. And I thought of it as a very dramatic scene and people started laughing. And that's when I realized like, Oh, maybe, maybe I can do, maybe this is comedy, you know? And that's when my teacher told me to go to the, the groundlings. And that's sort of how that journey started. But I think when you play things in a real way, that is, that is funny. Um, Just watching human beings go through life is funny, you know. And we've got to wrap this up. I, I, there's a couple of quick questions I want to ask you. You brought up accessing joy. It's something that I've struggled with my whole life. How of do you course, have, everybody, yeah. How do you access joy? Um, I try to put my be around people who are make me happy and try to be in situations that make me happy and try not to stay. I don't ever want to feel stuck and I don't want to complain too much. I usually am like, you know, if I'm, I let myself be unhappy about something for a day or two. And then I'm like, it's time to time to move on. Like now do something else. That's like, you know, um, before we go, I asked the same question to, to all the guests. What advice do you have for someone starting out in improv today? I would say go to Chicago. <laughs> Cecily Strong, thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. And, yeah, I'm uh, glad it worked out. Thank you for oh my setting God. up this call. This is great. And the movie, uh, The Boss, The Bronze, uh, Ghostbusters. And, what and The Meddler. And The Meddler with, are all with out. Susan Strandon, yes. And well, how, that, they're all opening soon. They're the all Medler opening and, soon. Yeah. And how are your parents dealing with your success? Oh, it's like theirs. I'm hardly involved. Okay. Uh, well, I want to thank them because I went through your parents to get you on the show. Oh, God. they're very, they're very proud. They're really sweet. They're great. Yeah, yeah. They said she needs her rest. So, so I have to go. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you. Take care. Bye. Right, bye. Bye. There you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I'm so glad that Cecily Strong had some time carved out to give us this great interview. It was so honest and so candid. 
And uh, I really appreciate it. We've been trying to get her for a long time. So thank you, Cecily, very much. Uh, and also check out her movies. I mean, my God, what a, what a, what a spring and summer is she having? Movies like The Meddler, The Boss, The Bronze, uh, Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. It, she's having a great year. Also want to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you would not be hearing my voice right now. Also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes and workshops, The Art of Slow Comedy, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Also, uh, check us out on social media because we're taking over social media. I don't know if you've heard this or not, but we are doing this. Go to Facebook and our fan page, Improv Nerd. Like us. It really helps with my low self-esteem. Then follow me over uh, to Twitter, uh, improv underscore nerd. And then we have a great YouTube channel, which is Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word. We're also blessed to be part of feralaudio.com. Some of the most innovative and unique and hilarious podcasts are on feralaudio.com. Names like Dan Harmon, Steve Agee, Todd Berry, Chelsea Peretti, and Jimmy Corain. Also, I want to thank both our sponsors today, the Baltimore Improv Festival. Go to BaltimoreImprovFestival.org and the 2016 Stumptown Improv Festival. Go to StumptownImprov.com. Of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And, uh, my, and my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.